You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So we're going to be hosed, and then we're going to be hosed again some more. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly. Welcome to the program. Tax on a tax. That was the news last week. Tax on a tax. Now, if you you drive a car, hey, even if you take the bus, let's face it, you're used to this because in Ontario, we have the tax on the tax. We have the federal excise tax. We have the uh, provincial excise tax. And then on top of that... We end up with the HST. That's right. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? Everything is wonderful. Everything is awesome when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome. Everything. I'm going to stop singing now because otherwise I'm just going to annoy you. But we've got this issue in Ontario where whether it is gasoline or now the price on carbon... We're going to end up with a tax on the tax. Last week, CTV News broke the story that the carbon price, which may or may not be a price on carbon, may or may, or may not be a tax. It might just be a price. It might be, I don't know, cap and trade or unicorn farts. I don't know. But we're going to pay. Well, they're going to charge the HST on top of that. Amen. Aren't you happy? Well, now, hiding behind the Ontario Energy Board, Glenn, I used to be a New Democrat, Tebow, now Liberal Energy Minister taking over from Bob, I'm too incompetent to run my own constituency office, never mind a ministry, Shirelli. They've decided that they're going to hide the price on carbon. That's right. They're going to hide it, and they are going to... Make it so that well, it doesn't have to be a separate line item. If you're used to getting your hydro bill, you're used to delivery charge, debt retirement charge, HST, how much you actually use. I mean, some of you have seen absolutely zero usage followed by a huge bill. We've talked about this on air. And some of you are upset and you think those, those charges should go away. You think it should just be one bill rolled into one, you know, just don't show me all the line items, just give me the bill. As if that would actually change how much you pay. It would not. We should have open and transparent billing so we know what's there. And that's why, as crazy as it is, the billing system is designed the way it is. But when it comes to the price on carbon, which I am breathing out as I speak now, my 12-year-old daughter calls a carbon tax a tax on breathing. Because she gets it more than the politicians. Anyway, the price on carbon is going to be hidden from you. Earlier today, John Yakabuski, the progressive conservative energy critic, was on with Chris Sims. I want to play you part of this because Chris Sims was pushing, which she's filling in for Evan Solomon this week, and she's doing a great job. And I'm not saying that because she's standing next to me rocking like she's got a baby in her arms. But I'm saying that... (laughs) 
You can laugh. I I know that thing that mothers do. I'll stop. It's a perpetual you, motion machine. It is a perpetual motion machine. I'm going to bring in Chris to talk about this in a minute. But, you know, once you have kids, you rock constantly as if you're trying to put a baby to sleep. I don't know why. <laughs> but Chris was talking to John Yakabuski and asked him about whether this should be transparent. Yakabuski won. Go. Everybody, anybody who believes in open government cannot see any reason why and especially considering that Quebec and California, who are the three amigos, Ontario, Quebec, and California, are the three amigos on this cap-and-trade cash grab scheme. They're, they, uh, of Quebec and California, both of them delineate that very clearly in a separate line item on the energy bills, on the gas bills, so that the customer knows exactly what that program is going to cost them on a monthly basis. Ontarians deserve no less. It should be clearly delineated, defined, as this is the cap-and-trade charge for this month, month of June of whatever, uh, and, 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 and let, the, let the people make their own determinations whether they uh, like it or not. Uh, we, all, uh, you know, we recognize there's going to be some costs involved in this, but why conceal them? Why not let the people have a, a full, open accounting of what it's costing them? All right. Now, Chris was pretty hard on our friend from the Ottawa Valley today. I was listening to the show, Chris. You were pretty hard on Yakubuski. I didn't mean to be. I mean, that's pretty clear. He's going to leave the bill. He says it should be clear and delineated. No, no, no. He said that it should be in line like with the three amigos of Quebec and California. Yeah, two and jurisdictions should... I don't want to copy ever sure. because they're both socialists. Sure. And so whenever I'm interviewing somebody, I always go back to them and say, just to be clear, this is what you want. You want it to be like this? And when I went back to him and said, okay, you want it clear and delineated, does that mean when I open my energy bill, it's going to be on a separate line? Because for natural gas. Yes. Let's say you heat your home with natural gas. Which like I do. What, 70% of Canadians? I'm part of the majority. I'm so it, happy. It's yes. like, it's over 70% of Canadians heat their homes with natural gas, I yes. believe. Yes. And on your, on your hydro bill. Sure. I don't know why we call it hydro. It's not hydro. But on your electricity bill... These things are all delineated, but on your natural gas bill, the Liberals have said, no, he said it should be. Let's play the clip where you asked him clearly what the PCs would do were they in power. What I'm trying to understand, sir, is how, how your plan would be different. Would you have it on a separate line? Is that what you'd have? Is that what you're campaigning for here? Is that, say, I get my bill? We're, we're, not, my we're not talking bill. about anything on ours here today, Chris. And, I, and please, this is not why we called. This is I don't have our plan in front of me. Okay. I mean, let's talk about the reason that I was asked to be on the I show I understand today. is that you don't like what Kathleen Wynne is doing. I get that. And that, right. that they're hiding this tax inside of the delivery charge. Ours, we already anything spoke. Anything that yeah. we have, I've told you right from the front, that it will be transparent and visible. And I can't tell you what it's going to be because we, we haven't even designed a program at this point. Okay, but what I'm asking is if it's going to be transparent and visible as opposed to what the Liberals are doing in comparison to that, mm-hmm. does that mean that yours would be on a separate line on my energy bill? It's transparent and visible. You would be able to see clearly whatever, whatever there was, whatever taxation there was as a result of a plan. It would be clearly and visible to the uh, to the uh, to the um, to the consumer. But it will be revenue neutral. Whatever is going back, it will not be going back into schemes that this government's talking about. It will be going back into helping those people uh, who need it most, who are being affected by taxation. It'll be going back as a, as a revenue return to them. So that, that any form of taxation it, <clears throat> turns out to be a level for them.
All right. So he's saying it's going to be visible. But how? I just kept, I, I felt like a broken record. I kept going back I, I, to him and saying, how? I, I just felt show like me you how. two guys were talking past each other. I mean, also, I think Jakubowski is someone that's trying to defend a policy that he probably doesn't like. Maybe In not. this price on carbon. And that he knows that, I mean, we did a poll at the Rebel, 82%. Yeah. A PC voters in Ontario do not like the idea of a price on carbon. 60% of all Ontario voters, including majorities of liberals and you Democrats, yes, don't like this idea of a price on carbon. I think he's trying to dance around. That's I think that's why he sounded so flustered. He's trying to dance around a, a, a policy he doesn't even agree with. And full disclosure, I don't think I've ever met him. This wasn't personal. I was trying to get what I thought was a very simple question mm-hmm. answered and to me, he wasn't answering the question. It's okay, you know, how politicians use words and they use different slippery buzzwords and saying open and transparent, clear, 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 but then not saying exactly how. So does yeah, that well, mean I'm getting my well, Enbridge bill? I'm getting my Enbridge bill. Yeah. Will you say carbon tax, six bucks, eight bucks? I don't care how much it is. Just tell me there. Can you just it, answer that? And that's how it should be. Sure. Because, well, I don't think but, it should be but, there anyway. But if look, it's going to be there, just tell me. When politicians use words like open and transparent, all I think of is the Princess Bride. <laughs> that you, does not mean what you think it means. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it yes. means. So I wanted to be clear. We've got lots of email from CFRA Nation that we're listening. All of them, in my defense, were just as puzzled as I was. Because I understand he's trying to explain something that will eventually be part of their platform when they run in two years' time. But the I wasn't asking him for his entire cap-and-trade plan, which a lot of people have trouble with. What I was asking is... I understand. You don't like what Kathleen Wynne mm-hmm. is doing. You would do it differently how? And it doesn't cut it to just say, delineate it, make it open and transparent. Tell me how in black and white. Does that mean on my bill it'll show up as a carbon tax or a revenue neutral tax or whatever term you want to use? And just I, say I yes don't or think no. Th- I don't think they know yet. And I think they're getting – I mean, look, I had Patrick Brown on a week or two ago. Sure, and we've spoken with him recently. And at one point he just said to me, Brian, you may not like it. I know you don't like it. Yeah. And that was his response when I pushed him on the carbon tax. Yes, and a lot of they're people going are pushing ahead, them. They're going ahead with this whether we like it or not, which I think is foolish, which I think they should reconsider. Uh, did, did you know that Ontario is 7% below 1990 levels for CO2 emissions? So even if you buy into this. Yep. We're we, already we, dropped. We are below our Kyoto commitment of 6% below 1990 levels. Well, they shut down coal fire, which was a big deal, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that's probably why. And we killed manufacturing. Sure. Well, there's that. If people aren't up here making stuff and breathing, they won't have as much CO2. I may may have at one point worked on Burlington Street in Hamilton, which was filled with factories. Yes. And it's filled with fewer factories now. Yes. And a lot of dead space. That means less CO2 going into the air. We are 7% below 1990 levels. We were told if you go 6% below 1990 levels, we save the planet. We're all good. Hallelujah. Now that's not happening. See, Christy Clark has a way of doing cap and trade. And according to lots of conservatives that I know, apparently it works okay out there. I I haven't lived out there forever. You have not because I've talked to people, conservatives and otherwise, from British Columbia who claim that it is a – and this is why I'm skeptical of the revenue neutral idea on the carbon tax – is that British Columbia is supposed to have a revenue-neutral carbon tax, and yet they keep having – and they're supposed to put out a report each year that shows how they've reduced taxes to compensate. Well, the the carbon tax brings in oodles of money. It is essentially a second coming of the GST. 
It is a, a consumption tax by another name. And it brings in tons of money, and then they have to go around and try and find ways to show that they've actually cut taxes. And I've I've been told that they've gone back and said, oh, that tax cut, that income tax cut that we did in 2007, that's for the carbon tax. <laughs> that was, I mean, it's part of being revenue neutral. Sure. If you can make it balance out, you could argue it's revenue neutral. I wasn't even wanting to get into that much detail. Mm-hmm. I understand that we're two years away for an election. But when he says open and delineated, I just wanted a clear example of you that. You just wanted to know, will it be on your bill? Is it going to be on my bill? And, and he wouldn't say. Well, John, if you're listening, if you're up there in the valley, I know we power down at night, but if you're up there in the valley, you know how to get a hold of us. Call yes, in, clear it up. Chris Sims, great as always. Thank, Thank you. you. You can hear Chris tomorrow on for Evan Solomon. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Uh, have we hit full-on Putin with the Trudeau mania? I'll explain about the shirtless prime minister when we come back. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So a student from the University of Toronto arrested in a terrorist attack. Terrorist terrorist attack in um, Bangladesh. Don't worry, though. All's good. All is excellent. Everything is awesome. Let's just keep going back to the Lego movie, shall we? Hmm? Hmm? You know what I'm talking about. The Lego movie and the crackle? Maybe not. Phil Gursky will join us in about 10 minutes' time to talk about this uh, latest revelation in the world of international terrorism. Later on in the program, we'll check in with Matthew Fisher. Good old Canada boy, Matthew Fisher. Oh, the stories I could tell you about the Fisher boys. Those folks... Those folks from Canada. I should actually turn off my phone before I come into the studio. Silly meme. Uh, we'll speak with Matthew Fisher. He's down in Rio for the uh, the Olympics. And then uh, later on in the program, uh, we'll, women's magazine saying they no longer want to. Um, they no longer want to say things like how to drop two dress sizes. Really? Is, is, is that happening? We'll check in with Adis Slavinsky on that. I've had a long-standing theory that women are harder on their bodies and how they look than men are. But one major women's magazine says it's time to stop using terms like bikini body and drop a dress size. Oh, wait, they just did. We'll get into that in a little bit. Are you looking forward to the Canada 150? I am. Because I'm really hoping it means an end to endless construction in downtown Ottawa. I'm hoping the war memorial's open again. I'm hoping we can see a little bit of the National Arts Centre. Maybe some of it will be finished. Maybe the road construction won't be constant. Maybe the Rideau Centre you know, will be able to see the outside without scaffolding. Maybe an, an end to the endless scaffolding in and around the parliamentary precinct. But, you know, I, I could just be uh, a little selfish because I happen to work in the downtown core. But Minister Melanie Jolie, our esteemed Minister of Heritage, her that looks like Blake Lively of the oh-so-pretty Hollywood set, she has started a countdown to Canada 150, 150 days away, she says, and she wants to make sure that the whole country is set for a year-long celebration. 
She kicks stuff off at the Museum of History with a ceremony that included stuff that it always worries me when government's involved in this. A ceremony that involved dancers, spoken word artists, poets, and others. 2017 will be a memorable year. And that will be the case. It will be leaving a lasting legacy. There will be a positive, motivated 2017 generation. Oh, whatever. She says she wants to get the whole country and communities from coast to coast, and I'm sure she adds in the third coast. We only have two folks. Let's face it. It's frozen up there. She wants to get communities coast to coast excited about the anniversary. Last time I remember the federal government being heavily involved in a national art celebration, I was up on Parliament Hill for the turnover from 1999 to 2000. If any of you were there, I'd love to hear from you. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. Have you figured out what those people on stilts, what that music was about, what drug the people that designed that program were on when they come up with it? Because they were clearly stoned out of their freaking trees. And that's what happens when the feds get involved in art. I have no problem with art. But when the feds get involved, yeah, it's a little crazy, man. Speaking of crazy, Barack Obama. Yeah. I I do include him in the crazy because what he is. Look, he was in the Choom Gang. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say Barack Obama was in the Choom Gang, you need to pay more attention to politics. He says that Donald Trump's suggestion that the U.S. election process is rigged is just ridiculous. Apparently, Barack Hussein Obama has not been paying attention to one one of the key people in his own party for the last year. Obama making these comments after a security briefing at the Pentagon that I'm surprised he didn't just say, I don't need to go to that. I'll just read it on my iPad like he normally does. I don't even really know where to start on answering this question. Uh, Of course, the elections will not be rigged. What does that mean? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is he not old enough to remember Bush stole the election? Bush stole the election. Bush stole the system's rigged. Oh, apparently he's not. Or he was just freaking stoned in 2000. Nincompoop. Oh, wait, I know. In 2000, I I believe he might have been in the Illinois Senate voting present on anything and everything. In the Illinois legislature, where Barack Obama was before he became a U.S. senator, you don't actually have to abstain from something. You just vote present. means you're there, but you don't take an opinion. That's what he did on every controversial topic so that he couldn't be tied to anything. Democrats claimed the system was rigged in 2000, in 2004, and in 2016 with Bernie freaking Sanders, you moron. Finally, Clint Eastwood speaking a little bit of sense about political correctness and the current generation when speaking to Esquire magazine. The legendary actor and director tells the magazine he's not a fan of today's climate of political correctness, declaring we're really in a blank generation. Everybody's walking on eggshells. Adds Clint, we see people accusing people of being racist and all kinds of stuff. When I grew up, those things weren't called racist. 
As for which candidate he thinks is most qualified to lead the country, Eastwood hasn't made up his mind yet, explaining Donald Trump has crossed the line with some of his rhetoric, but both sides have made regrettable statements. David Blaustein, ABC News. All right, and finally, uh, that blank word that he said, it's another word for cat that starts with P. We'll leave it at that. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. On the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So we're worried about security at the Rio Olympics. We're worried about security there. They've already arrested a couple different terror cells, and they always try and downplay it. And I don't know whether to believe them or not. They'll say, well, I mean, they're woefully incompetent. You know, it didn't take much to drive a truck down a street in the Nice, did it? Not really. And then you've got the fact that terrorism, as John Brennan of the CIA has pointed out, is a low-cost game. It doesn't take much to get into the business. You want to get into any kind of business, it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars. You want to get into terrorism, it's pretty cheap. I don't want to promote that, but this is a fact of life. It's also global. We have people from around the world, including in our country, participating in terrorism, around the world, and now the latest is we have a University of Toronto student. His name is Tamid Hasib Khan. Arrested in Bangladesh in relation to a terrorist act there. What is a man from Toronto? I know that Toronto is an international city, but what on God's green earth is a man from Toronto going around to Bangladesh to be involved in terrorism for. Phil Gursky is president and CEO of Borealis Risk Assessment. He joins me now on the line. Uh, Phil, this latest revelation, you know, and let's face it, Mr. Khan is charged. He's not convicted of anything innocent until proven guilty. But it does bring up the issue of the globalization of terrorism, where you've got people from Toronto accused of taking part in terrorist acts in Bangladesh. Hello, Phil? Yeah, hi, I'm sorry. Sorry Sorry about that. Uh, This is the globalization of terrorism, I would say. Right. Well, you know, and it's important to point out, as you said, these are are charges. It hasn't been actually proven. It hasn't proven he's been guilty. But I find what far more fascinating than this story is the fact that we have a guy from Windsor, Ontario, who's actually been called by the Bangladeshis as the head of ISIS in Bangladesh. And they put a bounty on his head. So it, it's clear in your, your, your opening remarks, there are Canadians that are traveling abroad. We've had many examples over the years. And you're right. It's, uh, it's basically it's the globalization of terror, and Canada's part of it in one way. In some ways, this isn't you. In some ways, it is. And, and by saying in some ways it isn't you, I remember in the days when if a Canadian was arrested on terrorism suspicion, they were likely part of the IRA or something to that effect. 
they were trying to fight for a homeland somewhere else. You know, I can think of um, there, there was someone high up in a bank in Canada. It was part of a group called the Tucson Six. I don't know if you ever dealt with that case. I know a lawyer here in town who did. Uh, you know, bank executive, major bank in Canada, arrested trying to uh, procure arms for the IRA. But that was not something of of spreading terror on a global scale around the world of just taking on anybody and everybody. To me, this is this is different than those days, different than the Fenians going back 150 years and so on. Well, uh, yes and no. I think it's important to label terrorism as terrorism, whether it's the IRA or the FARC in Colombia or the PLO, whomever. And absolutely. But I think what's changed is that, you know, we have uh, – I mean, I've lost track of how many groups are out there, and I've lost track of how many people are inspired and how many affiliates are out there. It has changed. Look, when I was a kid, and I won't say how old I am because it'll embarrass me, um, you didn't read about when, terrorism. When you were 27. <laughs> Thank you. You didn't read about terrorism. It was on page B7. And now, and part of it may be just that we're getting better at reporting it. I don't want to scare everybody to say that terrorism is, is everywhere at all the time. But I think now there are more opportunities to find causes that appeal to you. It's easier to get places. I mean, you're only a, you know you're only an air flight away, right, from anywhere basically. And, and despite our our complaints that air travel is too expensive in Canada compared to elsewhere, it's still cheaper than it was back in my grandparents' day. Oh, absolutely. And as I said, there are more routes. There are, there are more um, airlines that have landing rights, and it's it's pretty well easy to get anywhere you want to get to. And on top of that, you've got terrorist groups like Islamic State are brilliant at propaganda. They're brilliant at getting their message out, and it does find fertile ground even here in Canada. So that probably explains why we're seeing more of this. All right, so I'm unfamiliar with this story of the the man from Windsor being named the head of ISIS in Bangladesh. I did not even know that. I, I know that ISIS is constantly looking for groups that will pledge fealty to them. But I didn't know that there was a, an ISIS group in Bangladesh, nor that a Canadian had been named the head of it. Well, and I think we've got to be careful whether he is or not. Um, a, a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Amarnath Singham, who's a postdoc here in Canada, has been doing a lot of writing on this guy. But, you know, we sh- he's not the first guy from Windsor to be involved. We've had several guys from Windsor go and fight and die. And um, that's, that's the nature of the beast right now. And, and the, the thing is, the Bangladeshis, I mean, I have no idea whether this, this young man from U of T is guilty or not. I really have no idea. But what I do know is the Bangladeshis have been pretty slow to acknowledge their problem. They've got huge political problems in Bangladesh. They've got two women leaders that, that hate each other, and one blames the other for everything. Uh, they blame everybody but Islamic State. In fact, they denied Islamic State existed in Bangladesh until recently. So they're trying to get their act together. So is this kid, a, you know, is he a willing dupe? Is he wrong place at the wrong time? I have no idea. I, shouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes today, I'll tell you that. Because now they're start, Because of the attacks in early July, they're now starting to take this seriously. Is that what you mean? They are. And, you know, they've arrested, I mean, last count, it was over 10,000 people they picked up. So they finally realized there was a problem. They, they finally got beyond their denial. Are they arresting the right people? That's an interesting question. I mean, is it kind of round up the usual suspects or is it round up everybody and we'll, you know, we'll sort out the bad ones from the good ones? I really don't know. But they certainly were in a state of denial until fairly recently in Bangladesh. The idea of hotspots in Canada. Am I wrong in thinking that there are certain areas, and, and I'm not sure why, but Ottawa, London, I didn't know Windsor may have been a hotspot, but Ottawa, London, Calgary seem to be, and Montreal to a degree, seem to be hotspots more than other parts of the country. 
They are, and for the very simple reason that hotspots are where people are. So, you know, radicalization, as I've written, as I've said umpteen times, is a social process. So it happens when people talk to people. So if you have someone in your environment, and I remember from my days at CSIS, you know, we would see sort of generations of people would go through this ideology. If you have charismatic leaders, as we saw in the Toronto 18, as we saw in other terrorist cases across the country, who happen to live in Windsor or London or Vancouver, and you're going to have hotspots. So it's not so much. There's nothing. There's nothing inherent, you know, to Calgary or to Toronto or Ottawa. It's the fact that the people who are there are the ones spreading the ideology, recruiting and radicalizing. Back in the '90s, if somebody had said to me, um, "Where, where are the, the spots for radicalization for the IRA?" I could have taken you to specific spots in Toronto when I lived there. And said, "Oh, you, you know, you'll meet somebody here." Mm. Are those spots well known to law officials now? <sighs> when it comes to radical Islam, and I'm not going to name the bars or the places that you could go because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> now, I think for the most part, certainly going back to my days, you're sort of aware where these hubs are because you follow these people, right? And the the, the issue that people might have a hard time understanding is. You can't charge someone for spreading a radical message. That's not against the law. Okay, that's that's charter protected rights. Whether it should be or not is a whole other issue. We can probably debate that until the cows come home. But you do know where these people exist, and you do know what messages they're spreading. And the reason why you follow them is to see, okay, who is the message reaching? Who is believing in this? And who might in fact take this message and act upon it? And we've seen in Canada, we've seen the arrests, we've seen the trials. When it goes from thought to action, well, you've committed a criminal offense. That's why we arrest people. Okay, so in terms of places like Ottawa, it's because there's somebody out there, whether it be in a community center, in a mosque, in coffee shops, whatever, they're reaching out and and trying to radicalize and they're trying to spread the message and then maybe connecting them with somebody online? Online, Actually, online or in person. We've seen certainly cells in Ottawa. We had the the famous Samosa case back in 2010. Um, Everyone forgets about that one. Well, they do. You know why? They they do, Brian, because nothing happened. No one died. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we had three guys. One was acquitted. Okay, fine. One was found guilty and one pleaded guilty. Um, they were going to do some serious damage. Now, so there were only three were arrested. Actually, a fourth man was arrested, was released, and has been rearrested because he wants to join Islamic State. So, yeah, is there, is there like a critical mass in Ottawa? Absolutely. It's a critical mass in, in most large Canadian centres and even small centres. Like, like, say, I'm from London, which is not a great big town. And, yet, you know, we had the four kids from London go in Algeria back in 2000. And, uh, in 13 and blow up a gas plant. So it really is who do you know, who do you talk to, who do you trust, who has the ideology, and who has the personality and charisma to pass that ideology on. Well, unfortunately, it does appear to be here. Uh, we could talk about Samosa. We could talk about the, uh, uh, the the twins, John McGuire. The list goes on and on, unfortunately. Even Momin Kwaja, who, by the way, if, uh, if you haven't heard, Phil, uh, he's on a dating site for prisoners trying to find a girlfriend, and looking forward to parole. Well, I did write a blog about, I mean, my personal view for what it's worth and whether or not <laughs> Moment Kawaja should get parole, and I said categorically the answer is no because I haven't seen any expression of remorse or regret coming out of Mr. Kawaja since he's been in prison. But you're right, Brian. There, there are people in Ottawa, and, I, you know, I don't work for the service anymore. I'm enjoying my retirement, but I'd be very, <laughs> very naive to think there's no one left in Ottawa now that we've you know, arrested a few. There's probably some still out there. Uh, where can people find that blog if they want to read it? If they haven't seen enough from Momin Kawaja's own uh, dating site post where he claims he was just helping an anti-war effort, where can they find your blog and your thoughts? 
it's on my website, Brian. So it's, it's www.borealisthreatenedrisk.com, and my blog is on there. And I, I blog a lot because I have lots of time because I'm retired. All right. Thanks a lot for the time, Phil. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Take care. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Sorry, I almost forgot to come on. I was checking something on my phone. I think it was on the Instagram or was it the Twitter? Was it the Facebook? Sorry, I'm sounding like my late father now, putting the in front of everything that's odd and new. I don't know if that's a, is that an old people thing? Is that a Scottish thing? I don't know. I was on the Facebook, right? I was on the Facebook. It was uh, it was quite lovely. I, I, did you see that thing on the Facebook? Oh, no, I didn't, Dad. Oh, it's great. It's on the Facebook. Oh, aye. Aye. All right. Uh, the reason I I said I was checking my phone was... If you go out now, my friend Gavin McInnes, Ottawa guy, lives in New York City now, is constantly posting pictures online of people that look like they're out on dates. Couples, young men and women out on dates, and they're both looking at their phones. And he always posts it with the hashtag Millennials in Love because we can't seem to put down our phones. But it's not just millennials. It's everyone. And you don't have to be playing Pokemon Go to do it. It is constant. Earlier today... Chris Sims, filling in for Evan Solomon on Ottawa Now, spoke with Stephen Tyler, who runs a pub in Britain. Now, 25 years ago, my favorite pub in the world opened. My favorite pub in the world is the Lion's Head in Hamilton, Ontario, and this pub opened, and you could walk in and just talk to people. Nobody had cell phones 25 years ago. It didn't happen. But now you go in, you'll still get guys talking, but like in every bar, Everyone's checking out their phone. It's, the Lion's Head used to be the type of place you didn't need to know anybody to walk in. You could walk in alone, start up a conversation with the other guy that had walked in alone. Everybody's friends by the end of the night, and you don't even know each other's names. Well, Steven Tyler is talking about this in Britain and trying to do something about it because it is killing the pub culture around the world, not just in Britain, but around the world. Here's that interview. Can you describe this for us? It's being described as uh, copper wire and silver foil, not tin foil. No, it's, yeah, that's, it, it is, it's heavy duty silver foil on the walls and copper mesh in the ceiling and the floor. So it's um, basically it's, it's a box. It's a tin box with copper in it. And you did any this box, to block so cell any, phone, right? Yeah, it's absolutely to block cell phones. The only reason we did it was to block cell phones. Why did you do that? To, because I've been in the pub industry for a long time and I just felt that from 20 years ago, like Cheers was, was a proper pub and everyone walked in and everyone knew your name and no one was on the phone. If you walked in Cheers now, no one would know your name and everyone would be on the phone. And I wanted to bring back the days of your when you'd walked in a pub and would talk to people and you'd talk to people you wouldn't know. The first thing you do now is if you walk in a pub on your own is get your phone out and insulate yourself from everyone around you immediately. 
And so you're not approachable and you're not approaching anyone else. There is no conversation. There is no atmosphere. People make atmosphere. I wanted to bring back old days when I went to the pub and I'd go in knowing 20 people and come out knowing 30 people. That's what I wanted to do. And so that's why we did it. Go in knowing 20 people and come out knowing 30 people. It's sad how beautiful that is because it's now becoming <laughs> rare. Why, you know, it, but I think that's, the, I think that's the, the demise of the British pub is the fact that it's free Wi-Fi. It's all about restaurants. It's all about it's not going to the pub anymore. It's almost going to the pub to go on social media. You don't need to. The, the fun of a pub is social interaction and interaction with the people who are in the pub not the distraction of all the things that now go on and all the importance that goes on in our life that isn't important. That time in that pub is important. The time outside of it isn't. Pub, being out in public, <laughs> you know, yeah, get, getting personal yeah, with people. Yeah. Now, was yeah. there any one thing, you know, I personally have, you know, I've had different experiences with this. One thing that really struck me, it wasn't at a pub, and I'll be quick about it, but I was covering a provincial election here in Canada, and there were young people there who were, you know, supposedly the best in their class. They were grade nine, and they were meeting the premier. They were meeting their, their local political elected leader for the first time ever. It was a big deal. It was in front of TV cameras. Mr. Tyler, they didn't look up from their phones. They were glued to no. the phones. And I see this in restaurants. I see it in pubs. Was there any one thing that you saw at the Gin Tub Pub that put you over the edge and said, you know what, I'm going to stop this? Well, it was not It was my previous, I own other bars as well. And it, it become apparent as the years went on that the, the, the problem went on was, that, was the atmosphere in the pubs wasn't the same as it was 20 years ago. And it was getting less and less, and the youngsters weren't coming. And they, when they were coming, they weren't enjoying what we grew up with when we went to pubs when we were young. And all we had was our friends in the pub and to make new friends. And so I decided I was going to make a stand. I think it's rude. I think it's rude when you're with people to get your phone out and check your phone because you should be talking to the person you're with, not worrying about what's going on outside, not worrying about whether you've got an email, whether you've got a phone call, whether your Facebook page is right. You shouldn't be doing that. You should just be enjoying yourself. That's why we did it. I agree. And what response have you been getting from the people who are in the pub who can't be attached to their phone anymore? It's, it's been immense. The, the only complaint we've had is someone complained that they got a signal. So we've moved them. <laughs> they got a signal. So you had to <laughs> they move got them. A signal. Yes, I said, I'm really sorry we moved you. Oh, that's but, awesome. So have you had I mean, any young people or so-called millennials that have come in that have, where this yes. is new for them? And, it, and, and the response they've had is, this is like really weird man because <laughs> because they're going in and they're talking to each other and they're not allowed to talk to anyone outside of the bar and they're coming and, they're, and then they're talking to a table of 50 year olds next to them and they find and it, that weird yeah and they find it weird but they've really enjoyed it they've left <laughs> when they've been such a good time they said that was amazing i've never been anywhere like that before so <laughs> you know oh, wow. I think that, yeah when they start to learn what we had when we were young when when a pub was somewhere to go not cheers being the example you know but they will they will want that. They will want to go somewhere where they're not socially atta attached to their phones and to the Internet and to the rest of the world. They just want to be attached to their friends. That's really important. And uh, you and I are of the similar generation. And um, my I talk about this quite often with my family and friends. And when we have dinner parties, I even say to my friends, please leave your phone here in this box with a lid on it. And so we can yeah. actually talk and, and enjoy ourselves. And we only have about a minute or so left, Mr. Tyler. But when you look at this more broadly, because you see people of all shapes and sizes and walks of life that come into your pub as a pub owner, do you see this as a problem more broadly outside of pubs? I, I see it as a problem in society, yeah. I think we're becoming socially insular 
from the rest of society. You sit on a train, you don't talk to anyone. There is no social interaction, and, and the youngsters are losing the ability to socially interact. I mean, even dating now, they just go on Tinder, they go on a dating site. They don't know that the walk of shame when you go on to chat up a girl and she's you know, blown you off, and you go, oh, and you walk of shame as you come back and sit with your mates with your head in your hands. You know, they know they've been on Tinder, they know they've pulled. I absolutely love that idea. As I said, 25 years ago, my brother my brother sent me a text, so I had to read it on my smartphone. My brother sent me a text the other day to say that he was at the Lion's Head. Now, I discovered the Lion's Head on my way home from a college class one day. It's a tiny hole-in-the-wall pub that might not be bigger than this studio that I'm sitting in right now. But it is one of the warmest welcoming places. If you walk in with the right attitude, it is one of the warmest welcoming places in Hamilton, Ontario, where you don't need to know anybody. But in most places today, you walk into a bar, and it used to be, as he said, it was like cheers. You walk in, everybody knows your name. And if they don't, they'll find out your name, and you'll talk. But you go in now, and everybody's glued to their phone. I am the type of person that will walk into a bar on my own. I could walk out of here tonight, walk into any pub, Nobody will talk to each other if they don't already know each other. You might talk to the bartender, but whereas years ago you would talk to the person next to you, now they're on their phone, you're on your phone, nobody wants to look up. It's sad. We need to get back to that. Love the idea. I'm going to track down this place next time in Britain. Maybe I'll check it out. Send me your thoughts on this, beyond the news at CFRA.com. Best idea I've heard all day. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. When we come back, the idea of magazines saying no more comments like Bikini Body. What do you think of that? I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Women and body image. There's a topic no man wants to touch, right? Women and body image. It's it's a bit of a minefield. But there I am. I'm reading National Post today, and they've got a story from the Washington Post. And the headline is, Why a popular fitness magazine stopped asking women whether they're bikini ready. Okay, this is interesting. It's got a picture of Ashley Graham. Ashley Graham is a woman considered a plus-size model, probably not plus-size by, well, normal people's standards, but considered a plus-size model who was one of the women on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue in this past year. But that's not the magazine they're talking about. They're talking about women's health, who beginning in January said that they were going to drop terms like bikini body. Do you have your bikini body ready? Or... uh they would stop running stories such as drop two dress sizes. Okay, this is interesting. This is a women's magazine taking a stand on an issue that quite often, I think, sees women put more pressure on themselves than men put on. Want to turn now to Kanata, I don't know, can I call you Kanata native, Adis Levinsky? Well, Close I'm enough. actually from Poland, but I lived in Canada for a long time. Well, I mean, so you I, came I guess, from Poland when you were, what, four? Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. So You're I'm from not, she, so she's in Vancouver <laughs> now. She's my former producer uh, over at Sun News and uh, building a successful media and communications uh, company uh, for herself out in Vancouver now. But we've talked about this you this issue before, Ada. Mm-hmm. And. What did you make when you read the article? I mean, the article is very interesting. Then we'll get to what the current edition of Women's Health says. Oh, exactly. And, and, I then, mean, and then I, like I do want to talk idea. about the idea that women put more pressure on women than, than men do. Yes, for sure. Um, well, this, this sounds like um, a great move from Women's Health if you just read the headline. Uh, similar to something that Seventeen magazine did a few years ago with it, where they said they were going to stop photoshopping. Um, so it sounds like this is coming from a good place. Um, but then when you actually read some of the motivation um, for why they made this change, you're looking at a quote from ed- editor-in-chief Amy Keller Laird, she said, um, what they were doing was body shaming, um, but they wanted to to do something more modern. They wanted to stay modern. That was a, a quote for why they made this change. Um, it was in response to social feedback um, on their social media sites. So I don't know if it's really coming from a good place or they're just trying to get some publicity, get in those headlines, and, and actually make women well, pick up more copies of the magazine. So, I mean, they made this change in January. This is early August, and they're getting notice for it. But the latest uh, issue, and I ran downstairs in the break and bought a copy over at uh, Globe Magazine's uh, newsstand just outside uh, the station. Right on the front, it says, it doesn't say drop two dress sizes. Okay, so they lived up to that promise. But it does say drop a size, our easiest tricks ever. Yeah, So are they they living up to it? Well, I mean, maybe it's a a very small, small change, but you'll notice they're only banning two phrases. Um, There's a lot of other harmful phrases, you know, get a tight butt, like... There's a lot of other who doesn't want a tight butt at Problematic. Um, <laughs> doesn't everybody want a tight butt? I don't know. I mean, men don't want always want their women to to have a, a tight butt. Like it took me what four or five years of marriage to figure that out. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this is something that you and I often often talked about that women um, have this really disordered view uh, of their bodies. Um, and it's something that I certainly struggled with. So it's one thing to to kind of talk about um, this in terms of kind of your average woman of popular culture. Um, but a lot of women do really struggle with, with eating disorders. Uh, statistics show that 75% of women have some form of shown some form of disordered eating. Um, well, and, and let's throw that out there, because if people Google your name, they'll look mm-hmm. you up and they'll say, Here's this beautiful, skinny young woman. What the heck does she know? Oh, I mean, you know this, Brian. I, I've struggled with anorexia um, in my high school mm-hmm. years quite severely. I Th- this is why I brought it up. It. Let's get this out there mm-hmm. in the open. This You have struggled with, despite the fact that you, you are slim, you are beautiful. I'm not telling anybody that, anything they don't know. Uh, <laughs> you've struggled with these issues. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was something... Um, it just it ate away at, at my mind, and I had to go um, get psychological help for many years in in my uh, high school time uh, because I was so obsessed with what I was eating. Like at that time, Brian, I could have told you every single thing that I ate, 
um, down to the number of almonds that I had at that the time. number of for, almonds. Oh, for the past week, like if 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 you had talked to me um, at that time in my life, I could have written down for you exactly what I had eaten over the past week. It became this obsession, and I remember at that time when I was it was when I was thirteen, fourteen when this started. I would read copies of Seventeen magazine. And they had a list of um, things that you could eat in a day. So this was for kind of the average teen girl, um, a list of what constitutes a healthy breakfast, lunch, snack, dinner, down to the portion sizes. And I guess this maybe came out of a place for them of of trying to um, do something helpful to encourage women to eat more healthily or young girls to eat more healthily. But for for my body, that was nowhere near enough food. And yet I started restricting myself to that. And then it only got worse from there. So, well, let's take a look at the women's health issue. And and then I want to get into the whole men versus women thing. Mm -hmm. Look, they say... The Office 15. And we all know about this. I mean, you you have mocked me for years over what I've eaten because you've watched <laughs> me, uh, whether it's my uh, Swanson TV dinners or yes. or the, you know, going to McDonald's too often. It says, look, watch what you're doing at work. I did probably put on 15 to 20 pounds. Uh, we haven't seen each other in a little while, but I'm, I'm a little bit trimmer because I, I stopped eating all the bad things. And so they're they're article on dropping a a size is about cutting out your bad habits while you're at work. So is that a bad thing? Is that body shaming? It's not a bad thing if um, it has the right motivation. I mean, I I try to eat very healthy food. I encourage my two daughters to eat healthy food. We try to stock fruits and vegetables in the house all the time. Um, I tell them that it's because healthy food makes your body work better. Um, So that should be the motivation for eating healthy and and maybe if you have extra weight losing that weight instead of um just that i want to lose a dress size getting into that headspace and i think brian um for men and women it is very different for men it it can be something that they uh do but they're not overly obsessed with but oftentimes for women it can turn into something that's really unhealthy Uh, so a couple of years ago i walk into a shopper's drug mart down at bank and laurier Right. So I left the office. I go on a walk and I walk in and they've got this huge magazine rack. And as you walk in from the the entrance of the store towards the cash registers where I was going, it was all the women's magazines and it was skinny, 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 skinny. And then you got to Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. It was just out. And I'm not going to say that these were not models that were in good shape, but Mm -hmm. the difference was remarkable. All these other magazines had been aimed at women. And they were tiny, they they looked hungry, and then you get to the Sports Illustrated swimsuit models, and this is before they're even putting the plus size, they have curves, they look like they've had a sandwich recently. Yes. The difference was remarkable. Well, there might be some good news in that, that the two seem to be coming a little bit closer together. We have to wait um, a little bit more later in the month to find out. But the American Psychological Association um, is already saying that they've done kind of this meta-analysis of 30 years of body image surveys. And they're saying that the obsession with being thin is actually declining among women. 
So they'll release this data later this month, so we, we may have a bit of a better picture. But they've already come out publicly and said that this may be because we're seeing more uh, variety of body types in the media. So hopefully this is going in a, a different direction. Well, I hope so. Addis Levinsky, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, you can read her in uh, you know, Vancouver 24. Where else can people see your stuff? Because I loved your piece on what you can and can't flush in the Vancouver toilet system. I normally mock Vancouver or Vancouver, as I like to call yes. it, but <laughs> this is actually something that might work based on what I've seen in public toilets in Ottawa recently. Where can people find that uh, that piece of work? Uh, so the, the best way is just to go to my website, adislevinsky.ca, and there's a link to my writing on the website under commentary. All right. Thanks, Ada. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Sounds and, good. And I'm going to hate her. Uh, well, uh, you know, I could be jealous of her, but she has to live with Vancouver real estate prices. She gets the good weather, but she also has the real estate prices. Stick around. When we come back, women in the workforce. Are we keeping women out of the workforce because we don't have child care, or are we forcing them in because we have government child care? Andrew Morozik, she's next. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. So, what comes first? Is it the chicken? Is it the chicken or the egg? I mean, that's the eternal question in some ways, isn't it? I raise this because there's a a story out there today that is trying to put forward the idea that, well, you know what? Canada is lower than our... OECD partners when it comes to issues such as women in the workforce. And that's because we we don't have proper child care. We don't have affordable child care. Let me read to you from the story. Fewer Canadian mothers, especially those with young children, participate in the job market compared to moms in many wealthy countries, says a new, newly released internal federal analysis. This is a story by the Canadian Press, also known as the Wire Service for the Liberal Party of Canada. The story goes on. The Finance Department briefing note prepared after the Liberals took power also found that the workforce participation rates of Canadian mothers varied wildly or varied considerably depending on the province. The document explored the link between child care support and the involvement of women in the labor market. I've been covering the issue of government child care and what families decide to do for a long time. Why? Maybe I've got a bit of a an interest here. Maybe i got four kids at home. They're getting older. The oldest was just doing his uh, driver's G1 test today. We'll get into that later on in the program. But Andrew Morozik is with Cardis Family, and she's also been studying this issue for a long time. She joins me now on the phone. And, um, Andrea, to me, I'm reading this story, and... They're trying to cite stats showing that in certain provinces, women between 25 and 54 years of age, which they claim is prime working years, they're more likely to be in the workforce if there's government daycare. They cite 85.3%. This is the latest numbers from the Labor Force Survey. 85.3% of women in that age range in Quebec versus just 81.2% of women in that age range 
in Ontario. By the way, the overall for that age range, men and women combined, 86%. So not a huge disparity between the overall total and and women. But how do you take this this story? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Brian. Just a couple of things that I would say. Um, first of all, the interests of government are not necessarily the interests of family. And that comes through loud and clear in reading this story today because Essentially, this internal finance memo is talking about ensuring that we have more taxpayers, more tax dollars. Women in the workforce is not actually the question, although that is the title of the report. It's mothers in the workforce. They want to ensure a strong labor force attachment even for the parents of young children. And that comes out of a need for greater tax dollars, which doesn't have that much to do with families' desires. So, that's the first thing that I think it's important to, to think about what the impetus for such a report is. Because most families struggling with care in whatever way are going to look at child care support, be it financial for daycares or for parents themselves in the same way, and it's going to be as help for families. But in this instance, I think we can really see it as how can we get more taxpayers? The government is seeing it as how can we get more taxpayers um, into into the labor market and out uh, into the paid workforce. So, and, and what this report, and I haven't seen the full federal report, but what this news story on it does not document is that while Quebec, while Quebec has a higher labor participation rate for women between 25 and 54, the tax rate is also much, much higher. Yes, and tax rates also affect the manner in which families work. It's not just about mothers, it's fathers too, but um, I think research does show that the attachment of women to the labor force is very affected by tax rates as well. So for parents and mothers of young children, there's a lot of factors that they're considering. Um, did, they, did they spend a lot of time in, in the education sector? To, do they need to keep a toehold in order to keep working after their children are grown? The, the bottom line is that when we talk about child care programs, it is anachronistic because in this day and age in Canada, what we need to worry about more is elder care and the juggling of care that happens for parents who are caring for young children and old parents, the so-called sandwich generation, to focus our time and energy on either a national child care program or if it's just a framework, um, which I'm skeptical of just the same for very many good reasons, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, 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 it's an old question, and today's problems are different, and, and parents well, of young children have different sorts of struggles than would be calling for um, money to go to child care programs. I can tell you that when I last looked at this, Alberta and Saskatchewan both had higher labor force particip- participation rates than Quebec did for women. Now, that was before the economic downturn in the energy sector. Uh, but still, Alberta, despite being in the middle of a recession, the mm-hmm. labor force participation rate for women in that age group of 25 to 54 is 80.7%. That's higher than B.C. Why? Because there's still good jobs available. In mm-hmm. Saskatchewan, it's 83.1%. So, I mean, this to me, this report is about pushing an agenda, to, mm-hmm. as you say, to get more taxpayers because they say, well, well, we'll develop a national child care program that will put more women in the workforce, so therefore we'll get more tax money. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's about pushing an agenda to push up labor force participation rates by what? One percentage a point? A couple of two percentage, percentage points. Point? Yeah. Whereas, Quebec, it's, 
Yeah, it's interesting because Quebec did increase their labor force participation after they introduced their daycare program. That doesn't mean that's what families want. It means it's that that the lever of government does have an effect, and we know that to be the case. And oftentimes what that can mean is that people are forced to use a particular program simply because it's highly subsidized. It's a basic economic principle that if something is subsidized or cheaper, people are more likely to choose it. So I don't doubt that Quebec did raise their labor force participation. That's what that's what we see. But the other thing is that New Brunswick at the same time did as well, and they have no provincial daycare program. So the, the media report that we're discussing today does say somewhere at the bottom that it's a complex issue and there's a lot of <laughs> factors that go on. But, but I mean, that's, that's in paragraph 19, well before is, most yes. people have stopped reading <laughs> Let's, let's Only face the facts. Reading that. <laughs> you read it. Nobody else did. Who else gets to paragraph 19? No one. No one does, Brian. It's true. <laughs> All right. Just to give people the numbers for women age 25 to 54, and let's face it, most women age 54 do not have children of daycare age anymore, but this is how StatsCan does it. Women mm-hmm. age 25 to 54, the labor force participation rate in New Brunswick, where they don't have a government daycare program, 85.3%. In Quebec, where they do, 85.3%. In Ontario, mm-hmm. where they don't, 81.2%. So we're going to spend billions to boost that by, you know, I've got family in Quebec. I know that some of them keep their kids in daycare because even when they're home, because they can't afford to lose the spot for when they do go back to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's pretty well documented. The other reality in Quebec is the existing wait lists as well. So on this issue of daycare provision and daycare spaces and the funding of spaces, I'm always careful to say don't don't replace a problem with another problem because that is, in effect, what a, a daycare system would do. The Liberals are talking about a framework and they're funding it in a, just a pittance, so $500 million annually, but... Um, I think you, you know that's less than a hundred the the hundred dollars uh, a month for each kid under six that the conservatives put forward, right? By well, the, it's like one fifth of what the conservatives put forward with the hundred bucks a month. It's um, I, I think it's purely symbolic, is what what has to be said. And and the problem, I, of course, is that once a framework is set up, then it leaves all kinds of room for other things to develop. Um, the provinces have been active on this file, and they're things in place in Ontario and British Columbia that probably can't be undone such that a national daycare system wouldn't come up in the same way as it has in other countries. But um, it's still problematic if we're looking at a solution that really only suits one type of family with one type of need. They don't work shifts. They don't um, have juggling of schedules between parents or they don't use grandparents. They don't Mm -hmm. These sorts of things. It's really kind of a limited approach approach to what is a, a difficult issue for many families. So, you know, this is the policy question and issue that never goes away, as as you know very well. And um, I think, as I mentioned at the outset, we need to be thinking about the elder care side of things alongside this, and understanding that the needs of families are much greater than just that short window when your children are very young and uh, you're working as well. Oh, trust me, it goes by fast. As I said, (laughs) my oldest was writing his G1 test today. Andrea, thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you very much. You can find out more about Andrea Morozik and Cardus family at cardus.ca. That's C-A-R-D-U-S dot C-A. Great organization. Still got to go by their headquarters. It's around the corner from the station. You'd think I would have dropped by by now.
maybe I'm a bad friend. Back in moments, Matthew Fisher. He's in Rio. Is he swimming in the cesspool of dirty water? We'll find out back in moments. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Are you ready for the Olympics? Do you care about the Olympics yet? There's there's this weird thing going on with the whole issue around Rio. Does anybody care anymore? Do we care about the Olympics beyond the issue of Zika? Do we care about the Olympics beyond the issue of terrorism? I'm not sure that people do anymore. Those are the issues, though, that are driving the headlines. That and sewage in the the water. I don't know if you heard Barry Dworkin on with, uh, with one of the shows earlier today talking about this issue. I, it is just a cesspool that they have to swim in in Rio right now. And yet the games are going on. Matthew Fisher is someone that, if you follow foreign affairs, has traveled around the world more than anybody that I know. He's down in Rio right now, and we're going to connect with him in a little bit. He's, his latest piece is about fear and violence rule Rio's favelas on eve of Olympic Games. Now, the favelas, those are the poor neighborhoods that they have literally knocked down. I remember in 1986, or shortly thereafter, I guess, I got into uh, a band called Spirit of the West, and they'd gone through Expo 86 in Vancouver. And they talked about how to make room for Expo 86 and to showcase Vancouver to the world, poor neighborhoods were knocked down. Well, this is one of the regular complaints of any of these big games, any of these big events that go on, go on around the world. But Matthew Fisher writes about this in today's post. He said two people were reported killed, one officer wounded during firefights after police launched an airborne dawn assault on Complexo del Alamano, a group of uh, hilltop favelas known for crime and drug trafficking. A cable car worker said that the shooting had started in a maze of alleyways and staircases in the sprawling, impoverished enclave as soon as police has, uh, helicopters appeared in the sky. Mario Arajo, who earns his living taking people up and down the hilltop of, uh, favelas on his motorcycle taxi, said, Everybody knows that some very cr- uh, bad criminals live up there. 300 civil police and 150 military police took part in the raid, according to the Brazilian Daily O Globo. Ten suspects were detained. This on the eve of the games opening up this weekend. The games open tomorrow, I believe. Stephen, how's it going with, uh, with Matthew? 
Okay, we're still trying to get in touch with Matthew Fisher. Between time changes and international dialing codes, it is a bit difficult. So he says the complex was also the target of an operation during the Pan Am Games in 2007 when the area was almost put under siege by police in order to suppress drug dealing. As happened in many of Rio's other favelas, violent crime had dropped in the 22 slums that comprised the Complexo Alemanio during uh, beginning in 2009. That was the year Rio was awarded the Olympics and returned for a solemn pledge to eradicate violence in large parts of the city that were at the time controlled by gangs and were no-go areas for police. That's just one of the latest stories from Matthew Fisher out of the... Rio games. We may end up taking a break early and trying to connect with Matthew because, as I said, it can be difficult sometimes trying to connect. They are apparently having all kinds of problems with wireless connections. They are having problems with, I don't know if you saw this report, they built the media center on the beach near Cabana, and then the waves have been washing up against it. They've had to put up sand barricades around it. Now, in spite of all this, Matthew has found some joy. Matthew has found some uh, partying going on and that people are going to continue to enjoy themselves in Rio in the middle of all this. Let's take a break right now. When we come back, we'll try and connect with Matthew Fisher from Post Media. He is uh, normally a war correspondent, definitely a foreign correspondent. Right now he's in Rio for the, the Olympic Games. Let's go to break now. We'll come back with Matthew Fisher, hopefully. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580CFRA. You know, he's a Canada boy at heart, but I'm not sure he'd recognize the place anymore because he's never here and uh, he travels around the world. If he were arrested, he might be known as Matthew Fisher of No Fixed Address. He, He is the... Foreign Affairs columnist for Post Media joins me now from Rio de Janeiro. Hello, Matthew. Thanks for the time. Good evening, Brian. How are you? I'm well. My apologies for making fun of your uh, your wandering ways, but in some ways I'm envious of you. Well, it ain't all that's cracked up. <laughs> you're, um, you're in Rio now. Quite often when you and I talk, you're in a war zone. Uh, well, you could argue that parts of this city are a war zone, although I have to say that I'm more uh, in greater or closer proximity to one of the more salubrious spots. I'm only about 100 meters from Copacabana Beach. Okay, so I want to get into that because you had a great video up the other day about Cop- uh, Copacabana Beach, and and also that's where the media center is, and, and there's some trouble with that, but you were writing about violence. I mean, the, the front page of the Ottawa Sun today was, uh, the headline was Keeping It Rio, and then a picture of an armed 
it looked like a military person. It just could have been police in, I mean, the way police dress these days around the world, it could have been a militarized police person. But there were raids going on yesterday. What is happening? Does this have to do with terrorism? Does this have to do with cracking down on crime ahead of the Olympics? What was going on? Well, the the particular assault I think you're referring to, uh, which I did not see but was very close to, as it turned out, uh, yesterday morning, uh, that was about getting some of the criminal gangs. They're, they're extremely violent. They're, they're as violent as most terrorist organizations. About 450 cops uh, took part in a dawn raid on one of the biggest and most dangerous favelas or slums. Uh, these are hillside communities, area where uh, the people are extremely impoverished and uh, trafficantes or drug traffickers uh, sort of rule the roost. It was a helicopter-borne assault that opened the attack, so it certainly was paramilitary in nature. And uh, the official reason given for the attack was to make it safer for the Olympics. But frankly, in that particular case, I think it was just a pretext to go in there and uh, kick down some uh, serious doors. Uh, Violence is out of control here. It's always a problem, but it's up uh, about 40% this year. 2,500, 2,500 murders in Rio de Janeiro in the first six months of this year. And wow. Nine... I mean, that, that's worse than Chicago numbers. Well, it's, it's about 10 times worse than Chicago numbers. Plus, there were 9,400 violent crimes wow. in Rio in the first six months of the year. So so th- those are astronomical figures. That is one issue. And the, they, uh, even on beaches such as Copa, Copacabana, the marginalized people, there, as they call them, the marginalized people, come down and they swarm tourists. Uh, I understand a Canadian television crew was uh, hit and lost quite a bit of gear in one of these attacks yesterday. There have been at least two swarming incidents in the last 48 hours in Copacabana Beach. So that is one security threat. The other one, uh, and the one that will get really get the world's attention, if God forbid it should happen, is uh, a terrorist attack. Uh, Islamic State uh, has, for several months now, had a Portuguese language website, the first time they've ever done it, and they created it quite Obviously, I mean, they said uh, okay, uh, but to I mean, Rio sounds violent enough that it doesn't need terrorism. That would be, you know, I, I hate to sound flip about this, Matthew, but that would sound like uh, saying, let's send terrorists to where my parents come from, Glasgow. Uh, no, the thugs there will kill you if you're a terrorist before you even get to carry anything out. Well, that's true. But if you keep a low profile, you can probably go and do something. Certainly the Americans are highly concerned about this possibility, and they've been working closely with the Brazilians. Part of the problem in Latin America uh, is that they're not used to terrorist attacks. The last terrorist attack really was in Argentina, and it was more than 20 years ago. They they attacked the Israeli embassy, and also they attacked a synagogue there. But that is quite some time Mm -hmm. ago. So they don't have much experience of it. But there are four nonstop flights a day to Brazil from the Middle East. And uh, a lot of the people from the Middle East don't need 
visas to come here. One of the odd things is that Canadians and Americans need visas to come here, but uh, some people from the Middle East uh, do not. Really? And that adds uh, an extra level of complication in trying to run uh, people to ground or figure out who is who. So so that is uh, a big worry. And, of course, the history of Islamic State is they love events where they can get a lot of publicity. There will be 500,000 foreign visitors here over the next couple of weeks, 200,000 of whom are expected to be Americans. And uh, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of bars and nightclubs that are are totally vulnerable uh, to some kind of horrible attack. And and so uh, I think the concerns are legitimate, whether the authorities have a good handle on the situation. I have absolutely no idea, but you can see police and Marines and soldiers absolutely everywhere. There are 87 or 88 thousand of them on the streets. That's more than twice as many as there were in Britain, and Britain used to hold the Olympic gold medal for the number of of, uh, troops on the streets during an Olympic Games. Uh, Brazil now has that title. Some people have suggested it's more just to show, and it may be, but they've got warships out at sea. They've got fast patrol boats near the land. They've got helicopters and drones all over the place. Uh, it, there is quite a massive security effort. What what it will achieve, I don't know. But I hope it achieves something because, of course, I don't want anything to mar these games. And, of course, I don't want anyone to come to, har- to any harm. You know, I was speaking with Phil Gursky earlier about the issue of um, of terrorism. And my first experience of seeing British soldiers ready and armed to deal with a terrorist threat was back in 1988 going to the tattoo in Edinburgh. And soldiers walking around in ways that I'd never seen in Canada. So you're right. They're used to dealing with that. Maybe the South Americans are not. But uh, let's talk about some of the other things. I'm going to read off a couple of the headlines from your stories. I'm speaking with Matthew Fisher, foreign affairs columnist for Post Media. You can read him at nationalpost.com. Just Google his name, Matthew Fisher, National Post. It'll bring up all of his stories. But you had one the other day, the good news. Only half of Rio's sewage is now flowing untreated into the the bay. Uh, But you also had one, and you had a great video with it. And I encourage everyone to go and check this out because you get to see Matthew in a video, uh, which I'm sure you love doing these videos, Matthew. But you get to see Matthew in a video. I do them because I'm asked. Talking about Copacabana Beach, and you say, forget the public calamity, crime, and pollution. Welcome to Rio party central and you're out there in the middle of the night looking at the fact that middle of the night copacabana beach is still party central it is and i expect it is as we speak right now i'm very close to it i may go for a stroll later uh, a stroll in a, a stroll in a weed ram i went out no well i don't drink so, <laughs> uh, no no fear about that but i i've gone out Almost every night I did again last night around midnight for an hour or so. But the night in particular that you're talking about, I went out and walked Copacabana back and forth from midnight to four in the morning. And there were soccer games taking place. There were volleyball games taking place. And a number of the bars right on the beach had people dancing and and having a very good time. And uh, despite all the things you just mentioned, uh, another of the problems is the Zika virus, there's political corruption, an economic crisis, and then the water pollution, uh, which is 
absolutely horrendous. But Brazil, Brazilians and Cariocas, as the people of Rio are called, they just shrug and say, this is our normal life. And they find a way to uh, have a party. I think you will see it if you watch the opening ceremony tomorrow night, parts of which will have a samba, uh, the great and uh, kind of lascivious Brazilian dance, very uh, exotic and exuberant Brazilian dance. Uh, these people do have a fantastic time. And I think, uh, barring some kind of horrible thing like a terrorist attack, what we will take away from these games when they're over is simply that the people who gathered here had fun, sort of like the Sydney Olympics. They were a marvelous event where people had fun. The Sochi Olympics were the Olympics that fun forgot. Uh, technically, they were brilliantly done, all the equipment and facilities, but uh, but nobody really had a very good time, Brian. And uh, <laughs> London wasn't bad. Vancouver wasn't bad. I mean, pretty good. But Sydney was exceptional, and I think Rio will be exceptional. Uh, the people are so darn friendly, and uh, um, although a lot of them are are very, very poor, uh, they are very welcoming. So if, if you're not kidnapped or, you know, or, or hijacked... <laughs> if you're not kidnapped, you, you're going to have a great time. You are, and, you know, and I don't want to exaggerate how much that's going to happen, because I do, honest to God, I think people will come away from these games with a very positive atmosphere. I've seen down where NBC today has its studio on the beach, and it looks out towards some very majestic mountains. The two brothers, uh, not as famous in tourist terms as Sugarloaf Mountain or, or the hill where Christ the Redeemer, that incredible statue of Jesus with his arms outstretched, looks down on the city. But, uh, but the NBC studio looks down Copacabana towards the two, two brothers' mountains, and it is absolutely gorgeous and very seductive. And uh, people who see those kind of iconic images over the next few weeks will come away like the people here uh, with the idea that these really are marvelous games. They won't drink the water. They may not go swimming. I, I was asked today by somebody how I'm going to avoid getting sick from the water during the games. And I said, well, that's pretty easy. I ain't going swimming. But of course, some of the okay. But are you drinking the water? Go. You said you don't drink well, I, alcohol. I, I, what? What? I mean, what, well, one I of the reasons. The bottled water. Okay, one of the bottled reasons water. people used to make alcohol as soon as they got to this continent and they were settlers was because they couldn't trust the water. Can you trust the yes. bottled water? Yes, absolutely. I've never had. I've been to Brazil many, many times. I've never had any pride. I don't get stomach upsets here in the way I do in countries such as uh, India. Or or China or or Pakistan or or Indonesia, uh, it's it's not bad from that point of view. Certainly, bottled water is very very secure here and very widely available. Much more widely available than it is uh, in in North America, and it's more widely available in North America now than it used to be five or ten years ago. So I don't think that is a particular problem for most people. It will be. Uh, for some of the athletes who have to go in to this uh, sort of witch's brew, this cocktail <laughs> of, of bacteria. Yeah, tell, telling swimmers, don't ever open your mouth. That's great advice, isn't it? Well, the guys in the pool are going to have no problem. That's very clean water, highly chlorinated. It's more the long-distance swimmers that will go along Copacabana Beach, where, of course, a foot washed up on shore a couple of weeks ago. And uh, in some of the other places like uh, Guanabara Bay, 
where the sailors and windsurfers are, or there's a lagoon here where the rowers and the canoe sprinters will go. Uh, Guanabara Bay has parts of it where the sailing takes place, where the measured levels of unsafe water are 1.7 million times the accepted levels for the state of California, for example. Oh, so, wow. So quite, quite unhealthy water. But, you know, we talk about this. Some of the guys will get rashes. There'll be some diarrhea. But, <laughs> but frankly, I, we can laugh about it. And uh, it sounds like I'm making light of it. But I don't think at the end of the day it's going to be that, that big a problem. You know? All right. Matthew, thanks for the time. Enjoy. I hope we get to speak to you again. Let's play it with one of Brazil's most well-known songs. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. The girl from Ipanema goes walking And when she passes, each one she passes goes In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. If you've been listening to the newscast throughout the day here on News Talk 580 CFRA, then you have heard claims that Ottawa police are racist, that there are problems with the mayor, that there are systemic problems that need to be addressed. This all in the wake of the death of Abdi Rahman Abdi. Is that the case? Is that the full view of the Somali-Canadian community. The group that came forward earlier today would have you believe that that is so. But others say, hold on a minute. That, it may end up being that, but we don't know yet. Faisal Jama is the executive director of the Somali-Canadian Youth Centre and joins me now. Um, Faisal, thanks for taking the time out tonight. Uh, I know it's probably a tough issue for you to deal with at the moment, but where where are you sitting in relation to this other group saying there are definitely problems with the Ottawa police? I mean, I, I keep hearing different views from different people that that there are good relations between the Somali community and the Ottawa police, that there are bad relations, there's systemic racism. Where do you sit in the middle of all of this? Hello, Faisal? Yes. Yeah. So we, you heard the group earlier today. They're claiming that the police are racist and need to be fixed and that that they're out to get Somali Canadians. Where do you sit in the middle of all of this? Actually, the entire Somali communities have their homework to do, how to deal with the matters of their internal problems. But as a family member, we have closed the door that we pretending the lawyer to the family and the decision follow. He is the one who is taking care of all matters consigning to Abdi Abdurrahman. So up to now, we don't know this group. And I heard about it that there is a press conference today. But, but, but you're, you're not there. familiar with this group, though. I don't know anybody of these groups. Okay, but yet they speak. They claim to speak for the Somali Canadian community. I don't have a clue about that, too. Okay, 
the, the, the lawyer that's been hired by the family is Lawrence Greenspawn, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, I pity anyone that goes up against Lawrence Greenspawn. He is a, a dedicated and a tough lawyer. He yeah. is someone that will get to the bottom of things, and if there are problems, I'm sure he will expose them. Um, is it, he's, the one, he's the one who advises the family and entire community and advises them to wait till the investigation takes place, and we see the outcome of the investigation. Then he will contact the family, and he will try to guide us to what to do the next step. Whatever happened with Abdi Rahman Abdi, of, of course, is a tragedy. I mean, some a family lost their loved one, and we know that. And who is to blame or where blame is to be apportioned, that part we don't know. But as the executive director of the Somali-Canadian Youth Centre, how do you feel about the relationship between the Somali-Canadian community, which is substantial in Ottawa, especially in certain neighbourhoods? I'm talking about the South End. I'm talking about the West End in particular. How do you feel about the relationship between police and the Somali-Canadian community? Is it one of distrust? Is it one of cooperation? Is it one that needs work? Is, is there systemic racism? Actually, to me personally, it is the, the police and the community should work together, shows cooperation, to be transparency, to be fairness, justice on both sides, mm-hmm. without putting any allegations on each other. As a community, we are looking for a justice, fairness from both sides. We should not be biased. We know... And, and, our, and this case is a premature stage. We cannot commit or say something unless we get consulted with the lawyer. Okay, now, if you follow the court system in Ottawa and you follow the news, there have been mothers, Somali-Canadian mothers, that have spoken out about their heartbreak. I mean, so many of the the people that came from Somalia in the mid to late 90s came as broken families because of the war. They came without father figures. And we know if if you go down to the courthouse, you you will see many Somali-Canadians in the docket time and again. Is this because of racism? Is this, is this because of problems within the community? Is this because of a combination of all the t- uh, uh, all the factors? You know, like I asked because I've seen mothers speak out saying we've got to do something. Actually, the cases is different one from the other, mm-hmm. and allegations sometimes people were suspected, convicted, uh, sometimes. But everything goes into, through the justice, that can resolve the problem. Because I don't want to put now a finger point of from one body to other, from the community to the police. So I keep this for the legal system to take its place. So you want the legal system, yeah, we as, as we have here, to play out? You- yeah, we- you be- you believe in the legal system as as it stands, and that and that if everyone gets their fair hearing, 
justice will prevail. I need, I need justice for every Canadian, not only for Abdi, for everybody. Mm-hmm. To be fair trial for him. Speaking with Praise the justice. Speaking with Faisal Jama, he is the executive director of the Canadian uh, Somali Canadian uh, Youth Center. Um, I, I guess, in some ways, a counterpoint to what you heard earlier today, with claims that there are problems with the police force, problems with the mayor. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing from what you've said so far, Faisal, that you take issue with what this other group has said regarding the the setup in Ottawa at the moment in terms of both the mayor and the police force. Hello? Hello? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do do you differ from them? Actually, we are Somali Canadians, and everybody here looking for the same purpose of justice. Uh, Nobody wants to be betrayed. Nobody wants to be accused for nothing. Mm-hmm. We need justice. That is the most important thing for us, to see justice. As far as I'm concerned, Faisal, and, you know, I, I, justice is blind. And justice should always look at the facts, regardless of who is in front of the court, r- whether they are powerful, whether they are powerless, whether they are black, whether they are white, justice should be blind and look at the facts and come to a conclusion. No, I, 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 nobody gets a choice of his color. Mm-hmm. And people have, we have, as a Canadian, multiculturalism. Everybody has the right and freedom to exercise his faith and his culture in this country. So there was no question to segregate from one community to another. All right. Thank you for the time tonight, Faisal. Thank you. All the best. Faisal Jama, he's the executive director of the Somali Canadian Youth Center and taking a bit of issue with what we said earlier today. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on any of the issues that we've talked about tonight. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll be back in moments. Resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Sorry to delay opening up the phone lines. We normally open up the phone lines at uh, at 9 o'clock, but I wanted to get that call in. I'd been trying to track down this man. I'd, I'd been given a tip by Allison Sandor. Um, that there was just different views within the community. And this group that had spoken earlier didn't speak for everybody. And so we tracked down Faisal Jama and got him on the air. I know that sometimes people can jump to the conclusion that ethnic or religious groups or immigrant groups want to be a part, that they're only going to stand together. That's not my experience. 
And I speak as someone who is of immigrant stock. My parents, both immigrants. My stepfather, an immigrant. Most of the people that I grew up around, immigrants. Now, my parents, in fairness, my parents came from Scotland. And you could say, well, yeah, it's barely immigrants. I mean, literally, when my parents arrived here, they didn't have to become citizens to vote. They could vote in any election because they were citizens of the British Empire. They could vote in any election until, I believe it was 1979. And that election, they got really PO'd at Pierre Trudeau, who changed things, and I think they voted against him. Whether they voted NDP or conservative, I don't know. My guess is my mom and my dad... Uh, voted very differently at the time. They split shortly thereafter, but that's another story. But my neighborhood, I mean, let's just give you an idea. Right next door to me, another Scottish family, two doors down, Serbian family. Then I believe there was a Jamaican family. It was a very short street. I can't remember past the Jamaican family. Go around the corner, uh, Philippines, we were pretty much on the corner. Uh, go around the corner, there were Filipinos, then Lebanese, then Italians. Uh, go up my paper route, there were Italians, Polish, Indian. Like, just to give you an idea. But people come to this country, for the most part, because they believe in this country, and because they want to take part in what this country offers. And they don't view this country as being against them. And that's what I got from Faisal. He said, look, let's, let's wait for the investigation. Let's see. Now, could it turn out that Abdi Rahman Abdi was brutally attacked by police and that they went above and beyond? That could be, as it could be with any single citizen of this country. And if that is the case, then those that are responsible need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But what has bothered me about this case from the beginning is that before the family was even able to grieve the loss of their loved one, people were politicizing it. People were claiming racism. People were declaring that this was because he was Muslim. There's no photo that I've seen of Abdi Rahman Abdi that says to me, well, well, he's he's obviously Muslim. I haven't seen him with a big long beard and the chakra and the long robes. You go near the, the mosque in the south end. On any Friday night. And you will pass by guys and you'll be like, oh, he's Muslim. There's nothing in the way that Abdi Rahman Abdi was dressed on the day that this happened. There's nothing in the way he looked that would have had you say, well, he's obviously Muslim. Now, he's obviously Somali. He's black. Was this because he was black? Did, did, did police treat him differently because he's black? That I don't know. But my problem with this case from the beginning, in the way that some, not all, 
but some have handled it, is that they have made it about race and religion without knowing any, any of the facts. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Let's go to Frank. Frank in Ottawa. You're on Beyond the News. Hi there, Brian. I, I actually, I agree with, the, with what you've said here, but, you know, I think what's lost in all of this is why were the police called there in the first place? It, well, wasn't, my, it wasn't because there was a black man there. It was because there was something going on and people were being molested. My, my understanding, I mean, initially we were told that there was some kind of assault. Yeah. And then, how to put this delicately, um, the assault may have been that somebody was grabbing a woman's breast. Right. Yeah, but there was no indication of race, color, or anything. The police responded to a to a, mm-hmm. a call from the public, and yeah. they had to. And and you're absolutely right. Let the SIU do their job. Let's see what all the facts are, and let's not politicize this before we know all the facts. You know, we kept hearing that, well, police are never convicted. And yet, what happened just days after this? James Forsillo, Toronto police officer, not only convicted but sentenced in the death of a young man on a streetcar. Yeah, I, I don't know that you can compare the two issues. To, to, no, no, to no, I, I, think and, you, I think you can, Frank, because... People were claiming we've got to have justice for Abdi because police are never prosecuted and no, police are never found guilty. They're claiming that, that they, were, that they result, re- responded because of his race, and I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the case. And that's the other part of it. So it gets politicized because of that. Now, if it turns out that that is a, a, a problem, then that needs to be resolved. But then prosecute. We need to let the system do its job. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've only met Chief Bordalo a couple of times. Uh, I don't believe that, um, you know, they always say the rot starts at the top. Well, if the rot starts at the top, I, I've never picked up for a moment that this is a racist man. I never picked up from Vern White, the former chief, that he was a racist man, nor from Vince Bevan, who I, you know, was probably the chief I knew the best. I, I dealt with him the most. In, in fact, I would see him in my neighborhood. I've never got from any of these guys that they would that they would for a second allow for racism and, to and, exist in their police department. And, and that's why the system needs to go through what it needs to do, and then we'll see. We'll, we'll hopefully have more answers at the end. But to, to jump to conclusions right off the bat, mm-hmm. I, I'm not convinced that that's that that's the right way to proceed. You know, we, right. We're not looking for vigilante justice here. We want to know what the we, facts are. We want real justice, and I think that's what Faisal Yama wants. Thanks that, for the call, Frank. Okay, thank you. Let's go to Guy. Guy, uh, the Capital Voice. You're on Beyond the News. Hi, good evening, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, uh, full disclosure, Brian, I had the uh, fortunate experience of uh, being involved in the Abdul Abdi campaign. He represented for Ottawa West European in the 2014 federal election. Um, and I must say, the folks that I met and his family and mm-hmm. the people that I met through the 45 days, it was so enlightening. They taught me words every day. I ate their food. We shared stories. And you know what, Brian? You're right. 90% of the people... And, and, and Abdul Abdi, by the way. Abdul Abdi taught me a lot of stuff. 
about a Somali Canadian police officer. Yes, ran for the Ottawa, Conservatives in Ottawa, West Nepean. Eight years. Yeah. So let's. I full disclosure on that. So that my little background story on that is, as I said, you know, I really got a different light of the whole story. But you know, I don't feel that the Somali community is being very represented with what happened today. I think it's unfair to many of them, and I hope that they speak out. That's all I have to say about that. All right. You, you um, want to make a, a couple of quick comments about uh, Blue Rodeo and Stephen Harper? Yes, What Brian. does that have to do with oh, the price of peanut butter in Japan? you haven't heard the news, Brian? You haven't heard the news? What? They're doing a remake of Stephen Harper. Um, Greg Keeler has rewritten um, stealing, Stephen Harper, Stealing My Heart. It's now going to be rewritten. If you think Stephen Harper's going to steal your heart, just wait till Justin Trudeau gets through with your grandson's wallet. It's going to be <laughs> okay. Okay, Brian, it's going to be huge, Brian. Guy, huge. guy, just stop there. I'm a huge Blue Rodeo fan. Are you having me on? Are you having me on? I, I just, you know what? I love when you do tongue in cheek, and I just love the way your show's going. And I just, I really look forward to seven o'clock at night. I really do, Brian. Thank you so much for thanks for the call, guy. I've been listening to Blue Rodeo since, I don't know what, 1986? I know they're not fans of Stephen Harper. I just don't want to hear them sing against them. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Call now. You'll get on the line. Back in moments. rebellious to official ottawa he's disdainfully insubordinate you're listening to beyond the news with brian Lilly on news talk 580 cfra looking at the latest edition of women's health magazine we talked about this issue earlier in the program um the latest edition of women's health has jessica simpson on the cover Actually, on both covers, because if you flip it over, you get the September issue. Sparkle this fall. Woo! Uh, But the latest issue, uh, this is a magazine that has said that they're going to drop terms like bikini body and drop two dress sizes from their cover. This is something that they brought about in... January, they said. And yet, on the front cover, big headline, drop A size. Okay, so it's not drop two dress sizes now. It's drop A size, our easiest tricks ever. I haven't read the full article, but I skimmed through it. And it's actually, it's just like how to avoid the worst things that you can do at work, like eating donuts, um, you know, hanging out with that friend that, eats way too much apparently when you're out eating with other people you will eat more this is what they claim but they also have the ultimate guide to a hot bod with jessica simpson so we talked about this with Ada slavinsky earlier and the idea that the media can have a big impact on how women view their bodies my point is and has been for a long time, 
that women put more pressure on themselves and on each other than men do. You have no idea how forgiving we are. Really? You'll be seen with me? All right. That's enough for me. Women will will be brutal with each other. Women put more pressure on each other and themselves than any man can. As I said with Ada, I remember a few years ago, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue had just come out. I had not seen it yet. And yet, walking through a store that had a huge magazine rack, it was cover story after cover story with anorexic-type models, like you-wish-they-would-eat-a-sandwich-type models on the front. And these are all the magazines aimed at women, and then you got about midway, maybe a bit more. Let's face it, it's like the clothing section, right? So it's more than midway. Men don't get that much. You go to the clothing section of any department store, men get a quarter of what women get. So you get to the point where they get to the men's magazines, they get to Sports Illustrated, and the swimsuit issue. This is something that some women love to rail against, and yet I got to the swimsuit issue, and all of a sudden, the women on the cover of the magazines looked like women, as opposed to skeletons. So is it men that put pressure on women? Or is it women that put pressure on women? I'd love to hear from you on that. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. We also spoke with Matthew Fisher. I'd love to hear if you think that the Olympics matter anymore. Are you paying attention? Do you care? Does anyone care about the Olympics beyond Zika virus and terrorism? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Let's go to Al in Gatineau. Al, you're on Beyond the News. Good evening, Brian. Good evening. All right. Uh, I just want to talk about, uh, I was assaulted on Rideau Street about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were like seven or eight guys. I was actually working. Uh, I was a truck driver. I was making deliveries somewhere around midnight, one o'clock. And... Um, uh, I'm still off work after two and a half years. I'm on temporary disability. And no one was ever found. You know, they went back and tried and look at security cameras to see if they could find the guys or whatever, but it was too mm-hmm. late. They'd been erased. And I've uh, every now and then, I used to go on the Ottawa Police uh, website uh, to look at the most wanted. Just, you know, by any chance, I could find one of the guys on there. There's a two of them that I remember their faces pretty clearly. And I've noticed that, um, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm not, not that I want to make a racist comment, but minorities are the majority on there. Uh, if you look at the 10 most wanted, I think there's one white guy up there. And, well, and, I, I've been told by people that call, yeah, I mean, this is why I asked the, the question to Fazl Yama. Well, and I, I, I said, you know, you, maybe you've seen the stories in The Citizen and The Sun, Somali-Canadian mothers stepping forward and saying that they are heartbroken at the level of crime within their communities, that their sons are in jail. And, and, and uh, I've spoken with people that cover the courts closely, and they say 
that this is a real problem. It is. Uh, actually, the Toronto Police's website, if you go and look on there, whites are a minority, and very, a, a very small minority. And I, I don't want to compare my, you know, my, what happened to me to the Abdi case, but there's a trend that I've noticed also with social media is that people seem to have instant justice when they see uh, a video or, and they all, oh, the police are brutal. Um, oh, they, they should, but the thing is, people haven't seen what happened. Uh, no, the, the only videos we've seen in regards to uh, Abdi Rahman Abdi yeah. relate to after the arrest. Uh, okay, and here's another case that, he, well, he, it's probably, uh, it's about the same. Remember the Philando Castile case in the U.S. not long ago? Mm-hmm. He was shot in the car, and his wife uh, seemed to take very good care of describing what she wanted to have happen before she started filming. But and people just jump on the bandwagon and they go, "Oh, you know, they killed them." And this, but no one, no one has seen any uh, any video of what happened beforehand. And that's the uh, a, a, a new trend that I've discovered on social media is people already they think you know because the news got to them, they have the truth in their hands, you know. And that's that's very dangerous, I find. Um, uh, I think some of the violence against the police in the States is caused by partly because of that. Um, people are uninformed or, um, uh, how should I say, not uninformed, but uh, wrongly informed, you know. They don't have all the facts. And well, Look, uh, Al, um, if we're going to be brutally honest, part of the problem in terms of crime right now and you can go back through generations. I don't know if you've read any of the stories about uh, Lower Town decades ago or a century ago, and it was essentially fights between the French and the Irish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They used to cross over to this side on the uh, in the taverns and have fights. And yeah, walk well, back and, 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 and the French and the Irish were both in Lower Town, and they were in uh, Hull and Gatineau as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. But now... Now the problems in terms of gangs going after each other yeah, from people that I've spoken to say the real issue are between uh, Somali gangs and Arab gangs. Now, I remember a time when uh, he used to be our mayor, Bob Shirelli, used to say, oh, no, there's no there's no Somali gang problem. And our premier, who was also our MPP for Ottawa South, would say, no, no, there's no Somali gang problems. And then one day they both ended up at the same event announcing new um, funding for a basketball program for Somali youth. Uh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah. why are you why are you doing a basketball problem uh, program for well, Somali youth? Uh, look, a squirrel. <laughs> they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, and actually, when I was assaulted, the guys took very good care. They took time to say East Side. They kept say, they kept shouting that East Side. And I, I think it was some kind of a ritual or an uh, initiation to get in, you know, be part of the gang. You got to beat up someone. And they kept they kept shouting that East Side, and I, and I kept thinking, what the hell is that? Well, I, I mean, it could it could have been, it could have been. I mean, the Hell's Angels were just in town. They're a bunch of guys who are as white oh, but- as white as can be. But you want to be a member of the Hells Angels, you've got to do some pretty bad things in order to be initiated into the gang. Yeah, but these guys were pretty, well, 
Yeah, I guess the Hells Angels don't discriminate on which idiot want to do their dirty work. So they, they're probably using kids all the time nowadays. And you know that Hells Angels. Yeah, but moved, you, you want you to... want to be a full member. I don't know what the ritual are, but what what the rituals are. But it's not uh, very nice. Thanks for the call, Al. All right, you're welcome. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on Bell Mobility. You want to email me? It's beyond the news at cfra. dot com. Back in moments, I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Earlier tonight, we talked about the issue of government daycare, a new new study coming out from the finance department, and it's trying to say, hey, look, if we have better daycare programs, we can get more kids in daycares. We can get more mothers in the workforce and therefore more taxation. Chris writes to say there needs to be a mother or father at home from birth until 18. Governments need to focus on this, not unionized daycare. Well, that was part of the plan with the Harper Conservatives. There was two reasons the Conservatives brought in the $100 per month for every child under six. One, it was, if you look at the total expenditure on par with what the Liberals were promising for a national daycare program. Don't believe me. You can look it up. Before the 2006 election, the Liberals had gone across the country desperately trying to sign last-minute agreements with the provinces. I know because I covered it. I know because I made Ken Dryden someone who I had always held in high esteem, I actually made him foam at the mouth once. His spittle coming out. He's foaming at the mouth and it's just spittle coming out everywhere because someone dared question him on the idea that government should be running daycare. He was the minister in charge. He signed these last-minute agreements and then The election happened, and the conservatives said, no, we're not doing that. We're going to give the money to parents. So there were two reasons they did that. One, so that there was parents would have choices. You could decide. You want to take that $100 a month and defray the cost of daycare? That's great. You can do that. You want to use that and say, you know what, that makes it a little bit more affordable for me to stay home? That's great. You can do that. But despite all the claims that this was not any replacement for a national daycare program, they were spending the same, if not more, than what the liberals had promised. The liberals were going to spend less and claim it was a national daycare program because they knew not every parent would take them up on it. And then they could turn around and say, we've got a national program. We've got universal daycare. But many parents want the option to stay home. And poll after poll showed that. George writes in about uh, 
Abdiram and Abdi's death, saying, this 37-year-old man running several blocks, he says, I think it will be discovered that it was a heart attack that killed him. Look, George, it's too early for us to say one way or the other. We simply do not know. I happen to think, from what I've heard from actual representatives of the Somali-Canadian community, that there is a good relationship between themselves and the police. Was it always thus? No. But I think it is there now. But there are political activists that want to sour this relationship, that want to turn around and say, this is because of race, this is because he was Muslim, this is because he had black hair, this is because he wore shorts. They want to say any reason under the sun that they can find to blame police. I'm not willing to exonerate the police yet. I'm not willing to exonerate Abdirahman Abdi yet. I want to hear the facts of what happened. That may take time, and that may be difficult for some to accept, but that is how our system works. If we are people that believe in the rule of law instead of the rule of the mob, instead of the rule of the crowd, instead of the rule of man, then that is something that we're going to have to deal with. Gloria in Ottawa. Gloria, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. You know, I'll tell you, this group uh, that Greenspawn is representing is carrying on like it was a racially motivated Hold on. Hold on, Gloria. Yes? Did you listen to my interview with Faisal Yama? Yes. He said that Lawrence Greenspawn represents the family, but not this group. Oh, I see. I I didn't hear that he. I thought he would represented the group. It was hard for me to understand his uh, thick accent. I I thought he was representing the group. Okay. Well, this group is. They're implying that this uh, was a racial act by the police because they uh, this uh, the head of it was interviewed uh, on the on on the radio, mm-hmm. and uh, her comment was. It's racially motivated because the first thing they saw was his color, the color of his skin. Well, of course. I mean, they're not blind. I mean, but let the police force do I'm as pasty white as you can find. The first thing you're going to notice about me (laughs) is that I'm white. It's right. And once upon a time, you would have noticed that I had red hair. It's a little bit grayer now. (laughs) Rabbi Bolka, a little while ago, yelling at me in the hallways here, Brian, what happened to you? You used to be a redhead. Now you're a grayhead. Well, now you know life happens, you know. And uh, to be honest with you, I resent the, uh, the the fact that this group is demanding that the police must follow their demands when they're doing the the investigation. The police know exactly what to do, and this this group is getting far too much coverage on this. Let the police uh, thoroughly investigated the 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 very sad death of this man. Uh, before they start pointing fingers and blaming the police, and uh, let's let's 
uh, uh, get more interaction with the police and the and and these groups, the the Somali group, or the, uh, the Muslim group, the, the groups because these these gangs there's there's getting to be too far too many stabbings. I mean they're they're running around all over the place at night and stabbing each other. Uh, this this kind of violence has to stop. I mean they yeah. they've, they've gone from stab shootings to to stabbings. And it's, and it's got to Look, stop. Look, as I said earlier, you speak to people that are involved in law enforcement, that follow the courts, and some of them will not speak openly about this, but they will say that the the issue is Arab gangs versus Somali gangs. Mm-hmm. Exa- now, exactly. does that mean that every Somali Canadian is involved in a gang? Does that mean no, uh, Abdi Rahman? I, I don't think Abdi Rahman Abdi was involved in a gang. Not at all. Not for a moment. No, not for, not for a moment. You know, far too old. The, the description of what happened doesn't fit it. So that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. We've got to get to the basics, to the facts of what happened. Exactly. In yeah. this case... Do do I fully trust the SIU? No. I am actually very suspect of the SIU, Gloria. I I am suspect of the SIU because of years gone by. um, You know, there's a woman that used to head up the SIU who was very anti-police at one point. Mm. Uh, Then there was a period where people would claim that police would never be charged with anything. Well, we've seen with Constable Forsillo... Not only charged, but convicted and sentenced. Exactly. So, you know, I, it does I, work. I, all I want out of all of this is the truth yes. and justice. Exactly. And if For that, both sides. If that means that Ottawa police officers acted inappropriately, that they broke the law, mm-hmm. that they beat this man in a way that they shouldn't have, given the circumstances... Then yeah. they should be prosecuted, they should be charged, and they should be convicted. Exactly. If it turns out that they were dealing with a man that was erratic, that was violent, mm-hmm. and that in the process of dealing with that, something untoward happened inadvertently, then I'm sorry, it is horrible for the family, but that will be the case. Mm-hmm. All I want out of all of this, Gloria, is the truth, and that's all any of us should want, is the yes. truth and justice. Because right now, the only ones who are being blamed are the police, you know, for for, for their actions and the, the sad results that happened. But they were called in on a 911 call. They, they, they weren't uh, driving around, oh, let's, let's uh, you know, attack this man. Of of because because of his color, which is so totally ridiculous and and false. It's it's it's. I don't even know why the media it, it would would allow something like that to be played, but they did. You know, and 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 they're just twisting it all around. Uh, and and they're using to me, they're using the same kind of tactics as as uh, as is happening in the U.S. with with the police. Uh, and 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 the violence mm-hmm. that's been perpetrated there. So we are not the U.S. and we never have been uh, in in terms of, of of our law enforcement. There's always been there's never been a problem like this. And so don't create something that that is is not even there. Right. That's, that's my point. Gloria, thanks for the call. 
That wraps it for tonight. I'm Brian Lilly. This has been Beyond the News. I hope you've enjoyed the show. You can email me, beyondthenews at cfra.com. You can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. And if you're on the Twitter machine, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. I try and keep it easy for you. Back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. As always, remember, I'm on your side.